Welcome to Chase Family Church. You're about to hear a message from one of our Sunday mornings, and we pray that God would bless it to you and to your family. Working in schools, you tend to get ill quite a lot. And uh, this year especially, I've been trying to sort of sneak away from this cold and cough that's been sort of chasing everyone through the school. Um, I managed to do it until Friday, which was Toby's birthday, not yesterday, Dad. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and it snuck up in me a little bit, but I'm feeling a lot better today, so praise the Lord for that. Um, I don't know about you, but your workplaces as well must be a little bit weird at the moment. Is anyone finding it a little bit weird? Different things going on? Yeah? I'll start my timer there. Um, schools especially, I'm finding very weird at the moment, but you know, you have to look for the positives. And I've found that one of the positives for me at the moment is the fact that I'm one of the only sort of two or three men that work in the whole school. So they brought in this new rule to do with toilets. that You can only have one or two women in a toilet at a time, men as well, but there's only one male toilet. So I'm finding it quite light relief at the moment when it comes to break time and everyone sort of rushes to the loo because you can't go in the middle of a lesson really sort of frowned upon to leave 30 kids on their own. Um, so <laughs> go down there to the loo, and there's just this queue of women down the corridor, and I just get to sort of saunter through past them, smiling, you know, winking as we go and just walk into this toilet, walk out quick, and, the, you know, the queue's not that much uh, shorter. <laughs> you know, you have to find the positives where you can. Anyway, that's got absolutely nothing to do with what I'm saying today. Um, so <laughs> today we're starting in John chapter 12. Verses 20 and 21. So, here, John records that there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, with a request. Sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Now, I think most of us can relate to these Greeks here, can't we? You know, I want to see Jesus. I'm not someone who has ever really physically heard Jesus' voice or God's voice. God tends to prompt me in more subtle ways. Um, and I don't feel like I've seen him physically. But I tell you what, I want to. Anyone else? Yeah. yeah? I can't even imagine what it would be like to just, boom, he's standing there in front of you. But one day, praise the Lord, we'll be there, won't we? Yeah? Amen. So when those Greeks came to Philip, they said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Notice they didn't say, Sir, we want to see your beautiful Jewish temple. Or, Sir, we want to see your esteemed religious leaders. No, they said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And ultimately, people today aren't any different, are they? They still want to see Jesus. Some of them don't even know it yet. Okay, but what they're searching for is Jesus. And I think that's why it's so important that you and I live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and share his message everywhere we go. Because people want to see Jesus. Church, this morning, if you and I are Christ followers, if we are Christians, then day in and day out, we stand where Philip stood 2,000 years ago. We have the opportunity to show others Jesus, the real Jesus the biblical Jesus. And so this morning, I want to help us do that by taking a look at the biblical Jesus through a number of the portraits of his life as they are painted in scripture. The first portrait I want us to look at begins with the question, when you think of the biblical Jesus, what is the image that comes to your mind? Think about it for a second. 
When we think about Jesus from the Bible, what do you see? Well, for me, I think of a meek Jesus, but not a weak Jesus. I think of a man who's as comfortable holding babies as he is driving money changers from his father's temple with a whip. I think of a man whose presence is so commanding that when a violent, murderous mob seek to throw him off a cliff, he can turn and walk right through their midst. Yet a man so gentle and humble that he would strip himself as a slave and wash the dirty feet of his own disciples. I think of a man's man and a woman's man, a construction worker who labored and sweated, sweated? I'm not sure that's a word, sweat for 30 years of his life. Day after day, he cut his own logs, he, sorry, he cut his own trees, he drug his own logs, he sawed his own boards. He had no power tools except the bend of his back and the push of his arm. He had big, strong, rough hands, hands that could drive nails and hands that could have nails driven through them. I think of a meek Jesus and not a weak Jesus. What does that mean? What's the difference? This was a question I asked my pastor friend in America, Derek, and he answered me, and the way he described it, I really like. He said, if you hit a lamb over the head with a bat and it doesn't fight back, it's weak. But if you hit a lion over the head with a bat and it doesn't fight back, it's meek. We know the power of God. We know the power. We serve a meek Jesus and not a weak Jesus. Remember the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was betrayed. The disciples were soundly sleeping. Jesus was passionately praying. And Judas was deviously leading the chief priests, Pharisees, and a whole Roman cohort into the garden. Now get this for a moment. If you research it, a Roman cohort contained three to six hundred trained, disciplined, and ready for battle soldiers. Sounds a little bit like overkill, if you ask me. And they were all there in the garden for one purpose, to arrest Jesus. John chapter 18, verses 4 to 6, describe the rest of the scene this way. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. The scripture says, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. I'm picturing them just falling over like dominoes, like a house of cards in the wind. With a word, with a declaration, I am he, they fell to the ground. That's power. Which is why, in my, my view, the next scene is so funny, really. I mean, I don't know about you, but picture it. These, these soldiers have just been knocked down for no reason in their mind, probably confused, very embarrassed, pushing themselves up from the ground. And as they're doing that, Peter decides that he's going to give Jesus a hand because he clearly needs it. So Jesus has just dropped these three to 600 soldiers, trained, disciplined, ready for battle. And Peter's like, okay, this is where I step in. Sometimes I think Peter's a bit more of a rock head than a rock. So he reaches into his belt and he pulls out his sword. 
And he takes a swing and he whacks off the ear of one of the soldiers. So what does Jesus do? Does he join him? You know, does he knock all of these soldiers down again? No, that doesn't sound like my Jesus. Jesus bends over and he picks up that man's bloody ear. He dusts it off and he places it back on that man's head and he's healed. He's healed. We serve a meek Jesus and not a weak Jesus. People today want to see that Jesus. But do they see that Jesus in us? Do they see that Jesus in the way that we live our lives? The second portrait I want to look at, want us to look at this morning, begins with another question. What makes Jesus cry? I mean, what brings tears to the eyes of a man who can knock to the ground three to six hundred soldiers with a word? What makes that kind of man cry? Well, turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 11. We're looking at verses 33 to 36, and we'll soon see. So Jesus has just received an urgent message from Mary and Martha that the one that he loves, Lazarus, is dying, so is deathly ill. And of course, the implication of them sending this message is come and come quickly, you know, snappy. Because Lazarus was a close buddy of Jesus. They had known each other for years. They had often eaten together. And Jesus had often stayed in Lazarus' house. Lazarus' house was kind of a home away from home. Jesus loved Lazarus. But when Jesus received this message from Lazarus' sisters, that the one he loved was ill, instead of immediately rushing to Lazarus' aid, Jesus waits. And he waits for two days. Why? Because Jesus has got a bigger plan and a bigger purpose for this situation. He is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but only he and his disciples know it at this time. So when he finally shows up at Lazarus's house, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And Mary hears that Jesus has finally come. She goes racing out to him. She falls at his feet, weeping. She says, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Then scripture says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then standing outside the tomb where Jesus will soon raise Lazarus from the grave, we come to the shortest, but one of the most profound verses in all of scripture. And it's only two words. It says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now let us think for a moment, why is Jesus weeping? Why is Jesus weeping? Think about it. Jesus knows He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's why he's come. He knows he's going to do it. So why is he crying? It doesn't make sense. Unless, unless, when Jesus cries, when we cry. And he hurts when we hurt. Then it makes sense. What makes Jesus cry? Our hurts. Our pain. Our tears. Jesus was filled with heartfelt compassion. Church, people today want to see that Jesus through us. 
And I tell you what, there are people out there now who need that compassion. There are a lot of broken people out there right now who need to see Jesus through us. They're searching for something. They might know, know or they might not know what it is, but through our lives, they will be able to see and experience Jesus. But even more than sharing in our hurts and our tears, Jesus wants us to know that he can take the broken, shattered pieces of our lives and make something beautiful out of them. If we will only bring to him the problem. You know, sometimes we get selfish with our problems, don't we? We say, we're going to work it out. We'll muddle through. You know, we'll push through instead of giving them over to Jesus. Instead of letting him deal with the problem. And that's exactly what Mary and Martha do. They bring the problem to Jesus. Verse 34, when Jesus asked, where have you laid him? Notice Mary and Martha don't snap back with a remark. You know, where have you been for these days? Why weren't you here? Which they could well have done. They don't know. Instead, when Jesus asks where, where Lazarus has been laid, they take him straight to the problem, straight to the tomb. And as a result, Jesus calls him straight out of death and into life. And Lazarus is, Lazarus is raised. Amen. I'll tell you a story. Virginia Law Shell and her husband Burley were missionaries in what used to be called the Belgian Congo, two Americans. Um, and while they were there, the Congolese Communist Rebellion broke out. Try and say that quickly, goodness. Um, and the way she tells the story, she says, not long after when they were there, this not long, sorry, not long after the rebellion had broken out, Things got so intense that she and her two children um, had to go back to the States because it was too dangerous, while Burley, who was a missionary pilot, um, would stay as long as he could. Well, one day after Virginia and the children had gone home, um, they were going about the, Burley was going about his normal business in the missionary compound when he heard a distress call over the radio. It was from another group of missionaries and they were crying out for help, saying, if anyone can hear this message, please come, and to come quickly, because the communists were getting ready to overrun their compound. Now, when Burley heard that, he knew exactly what he had to do. So he jumps into his little bush plane, and he takes off. And when he gets to this compound, he flies round three times, just to make sure that the compound isn't already overrun. And when he was reasonably sure that it wasn't, he landed he took his little plane and he sat it down on the runway. But no sooner did he step out onto the runway that two men came out from behind a bush and they shot him down. Virginia says when she got word of what happened, she went to God. and She cries out, God, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with the broken, shattered pieces of my life? I've got two small children. My husband is dead over in Africa. What are you going to do? And she said that with that, God reminded her of a story that she'd been told when she was younger. Okay, a fictional story about the first stained glass window. The story goes that there was this little village in Europe that had been greatly blessed by God. And they wanted to find a way to express their love and thanks for all that he had done for them. And so they began to scrimp and save until they had gathered up enough money to buy beautiful coloured windows for their church. Not stained glass, but coloured. 
On the day that the master craftsman arrived, all of the people of this little village turned out to watch him. As he took out the clear windows and put in and carefully replaced them with these beautiful colored windows, blues, reds, yellows, and greens. And finally, when he was done, they all gathered inside their little church and worshipped this one. They worshipped God who had been so very good to them. So when this was all over, they went back to their houses and went to sleep, put their heads down on their pillows. And that night there was a violent storm. Okay, it came blowing into town. And through the night they listened in horror as they heard crash after crash after crash. Early the next morning, the people gathered at their little church, only this time every place where there had been a beautiful colored window, there was now nothing. So the people talked and they decided that there was only one thing left to do, and that was to go back inside their beautiful church and worship the one who had been so good. But when they opened the doors to go inside, they noticed a movement in the shadows. At first, they thought the light was playing tricks with their eyes, but then they realized it was the master craftsman who had already, or who had already begun gathering together all of the broken, shattered pieces of glass from the different colored windows. And he began piecing them together into these stained glass windows. Now, Virginia says that when God reminded her of this story, he reminded her that if we will just put our lives into the hands of the master craftsman, that he will take these broken pieces, these shattered pieces, and make something beautiful out of them, something new, something wonderful, if we'll only allow him. Jesus can bring his transforming power to all that he touches. People want to see that passion, sorry, that power. People want to see that power through us. Do they see that when they look at you? The last portrait I want to look at today is found in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. The scene opens up with Jesus at the temple. He's probably seated in the customary teaching position of the day with people gathered all around him. And as he's teaching, a murmur begins to spread. And then the crowd begins to part. And then the scribes and Pharisees come breaking through, jerking and pulling and literally dragging a scantily clad woman before him. And then, mockingly, the scribes and Pharisees turn to Jesus and they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone such as her. But what do you say, Jesus? What do you say? Now, I don't know about you, but these days, my first thought is, where's the man? They didn't drag him out, did they? Different times. But what do we know about this situation? Well, what we do know is that this is a trap for Jesus that has been set. And Jesus knows it, of course. He knows. If he says, stone her, they're going to report him to the Romans. And if he says, let her go, they're going to accuse him of violating God's law. So no matter which way he turns, they think they've got him trapped. So what does he do? Well, he does what he often does, which is the unexpected. 
He bends down and he writes in the sand. Now, we don't know what he wrote in the sand. Some say he wrote the Ten Commandments. Some say he began listing the specific sins of those that are gathered. But either way, when he is done, he raises up and he looks deep into the eyes of those that hate and accuse. And he says, let he that is without sin cast the first stone. And with that, the noisy crowd goes silent. And then Jesus bends down to continue his writing. And as he does, an amazing thing takes place. It begins to rain rocks, not in the way that we would think. And like most rains, it begins with a single solitary drop, a single solitary thud of a stone falling from the hands of an accuser. That was followed by another and another and another until the entire cloud bursts. And from the oldest to the youngest, all of this woman's accusers drop their rocks and walk away. And when that last rock hits the ground, and Jesus gets up again, he starts looking around and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No, sir, no one. Then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Church, when you and I scream for justice, thank our God for mercy. Now, have you extended to others the mercy that Jesus has extended to you? Have you? People today would see that Jesus. And do they see that Jesus in you? As you reflect on these portraits of the biblical Jesus, to what degree do you think others look at your life and my life and say, you know what, I can see Jesus in that person. I can see Jesus in your meekness. I can see Jesus in your compassion for other people. I can see him in your transforming power. And I can see him in your mercy. Our world right now is full of broken, hurting people. People that have lost their jobs, lost their family and friends. People who are feeling anxious, so anxious that they can't even leave the house. We might never have an opportunity where this many people need to meet Jesus again. And they're searching and they're searching, even if they know it or not, they're searching for Jesus. And they might not meet him in the street, but they might meet us. And when we have that opportunity, we need to show them Jesus. Show them his meekness, his compassion, his transforming power, and his mercy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I ask this morning that you would come and speak to us. That you would show us right now, Lord God, how we can best show you to other people around us. God, we want to show your meekness. We want to show your compassion. We want to show your transforming power to everyone that we meet, Lord God. We want to show your mercy, Lord God. Provide us opportunities at this time to speak to the people around us. Lord, show us the people that are hurting, Lord God, that are going through stuff at the moment so that we can preach and tell them about you, Lord God. 
that we can show and be an example to them about how Jesus lived his life and what he did for them. Lord, send your Holy Spirit now to speak to us this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the message today and pray that it would bless you in your life. And if you have any questions you would like to ask, then please email info at chasefamilychurch.com.